Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Spring Fair, the UK's most diverse, relevant, and exciting buying destination for wholesale home, gift, and fashion. Spring Fair, refueling retail. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast with me, Mark Faithful. In this episode, we're talking well being. Well being is a subject that has come increasingly to the forefront of society and retailers' consciousness. While people from all backgrounds have shown strength and resilience during the pandemic, it has not been without its challenges. And the legacy that it may leave behind on people is likely to be felt for some time to come. Employees' personal health and well being issues do not stop at the store or office entrance. So, what can retailers do to be well placed to deliver on the need for greater employee well being? I sat down with Next Wellbeing Officer Claire Kershaw and Oakwood Training Managing Director Terry Strether to examine the factors that contribute to our well-being in the workplace. We discussed the importance of achieving buy-in at a senior level to cement well-being's place on the corporate agenda, why the narrative needs to switch from being reactive to one that's proactive, how to empower managers to spot the warning signs among employees who may need support, and what well-being looks like in the future. Here's the episode. Claire and Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. So let's jump right in and start with the basics. Claire, what does good mental health and well-being in the workplace mean to you? I think mental health and well-being in the workplace is is something that has to be organically in place in the workplace. So it's not a case of ticking boxes and just saying, yes, we've got this, yes, we've got that. It's actually being embedded in the workplace. Um, it's not a tick box exercise and it's, it's a journey. Mental health and well-being is a, is a journey. You can always add to it. You can always make it better. But yeah, it's, it's definitely not a tick box. And Terry, the same question to you. Yeah, I think it's about um, people feeling fulfilled with the work that they do. You know, I think we, we struggle to define what well-being actually is. The fact that there isn't one agreed definition says a lot about that, I think. But I think when a worker can come into the workplace and feel like what they're doing has some sort of fulfillment for them on a personal level, I think that's where we need to aim for, rather than just gimmicks, if I could put it bluntly. It's been an extraordinary couple of years, unprecedented certainly, but if we look a little bit longer, how's the landscape around employee wellbeing changed in the last decade or so, would you say, Claire? I think probably 10 years ago, you know, it was okay to have a few wellbeing leaflets around and maybe the odd piece of fruit thrown at you or maybe a helpline number. But I think particularly over the last 10 years, we've kind of, within wellbeing, um, it's just grown just massively and touched on subject areas to another level, really, that, you know, we've now all got kind of wellbeing sites, wellbeing hubs, digital this, apps for everything. And it's just grown and explored into areas that kind of, you know, people probably never even thought of before. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's massively grown in, in most organisations. Terry, what changes have you seen over the past decade? Well, it's very much on people's agenda now. You know, people expect that well-being will be looked after. If I'm an employee and I'm applying for a new job, you know, we know from LinkedIn, you know, they publish their global trends report and we know that far more posts are engaged with when they mention things like well-being, work-life balance, fulfillment. So it's on people's agendas when they're looking for jobs and organisations when they're making these advertisements for jobs, when they put those words into these posts, that's when they're attracting the people that they want. Becoming successful in whatever job you perform takes hard work, but that's sometimes referred to as being a toxic thing these days. There's a difference, obviously, between working hard and working smart. So, Claire, what would you like to see implemented within businesses to tackle the causes of stress and well-being, not just responding well to the after-effects? 
I think it is about kind of not reacting, but having some things in place to uh, look after people before they get into a crisis situation. So it's about self-care. It's about looking after yourself and tools in place to, to make sure people um, don't get to that point of, of crisis, really. And also, I think with us all working from home, or a lot of us working from home during the pandemic, I think that it's been very difficult for people to separate their work and their personal lives. And I think that, that that's the whole thing about people having a work-life balance and making sure they build in time for them and not sort of being drowned with work and things they need to do in the, in the workplace. So I think it's about having that downtime as well so they don't burn out. Terry, how can we make sure that wellbeing is dealt with before it becomes a major issue for people rather than responding when we can see obvious effects that they're having problems? Yeah, major problem for me, uh, major issue in, in the sector as a whole, not just in retail. But, you know, historically we tend to signpost people when the wheels come off. So as part of the return to work process, well, I'll point you in the direction of the Employee Assistance Programme for your six free counselling sessions or whatever it may be. Why aren't we getting in there sooner? You know, why, why aren't we being more proactive when it comes to, to well-being as, as, as a whole? So it, it's not just about reacting when people become unwell. I think the future of well-being looks very different. It's about how can we make sure that people aren't getting in in the first place? You know, how can we empower our managers, for example, to be looking out for people's well-being, to spot the signs, to know how to have those sometimes tricky conversations with someone when you're concerned or you've seen signs and symptoms that worry you. Um, I think managers are really worried about getting it wrong, saying the wrong thing. And I think with all the attention on, on mental health and well-being and all that that we see in workplaces now, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think there's the potential for it to be like, well, hang on a minute, this is a, the new bad back. We're, we're, we're jumping all over this, you know. We're going to raise awareness. We're going to shout about well-being from the rooftops. And if I have a mental health problem, you can't touch me because I'm disabled under the Equality Act. And, and we know it's not quite as clear-cut as all that, but I wonder if sometimes all of the awareness is actually undermining the real purpose. And it does become window dressing. It does become tick box. And we're not actually dealing with the real issues that make a meaningful difference to people's well-being on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, that's exactly something I want to come on to. I think inevitably when something moves up the agenda, there is a tendency for some organisations to start treating well-being perhaps as a, you know, a box ticks because they can signpost an employee assistance programme yeah. or a mental health data. Claire, that's obviously not really enough right now. No, it's not. It's it's not okay just to sort of send someone off to uh, to ring a number. Um, and as Terry's already alluded to, it is about early spotting of signs. Um, and I think that's the, that's the piece, isn't it? Is the education so that managers are aware of what they're looking for because it's much easier to help someone and guide someone and give them the support they need before they get to that really bad situation. Um, so it, it is about that that kind of awareness and guiding people and supporting people and getting people to help themselves as well uh, to make changes to the lives that mean that they don't end up spiralling out of control really. Do you think people are equipped to recognise when those things start to happen because it is quite a new area for a lot of people to think about? Yeah, I think that it's getting more apparent. I mean, I, I know at, at Next we kind of share anecdotal stories of, you know, sort of um, people who've seeked help and have, you know, made a recovery. And I think it, by telling stories like that, I think it makes it more open for people to reach out for help when they need it and also for managers to be more aware of looking out for help when it's, it's needed. So actually observing people's behaviours, changing behaviours, because that's the key thing, isn't it? Someone's behaviour changes and they start acting differently in certain situations. It's about that. That's the time to step in and, and help people and provide the support. So it's just looking for those signs. With a business like Next, you've got stores, you've got headquarters, you've got the online division, you've got people working in logistics and delivery. It's a huge diversity of jobs. Yeah. It's a very large business. 
So what are the key challenges of managing employee wellbeing with that sort of diversity? Yeah, it's strange actually because certain wellbeing initiatives that we do land differently in different divisions. So obviously certain things the retail stores um, kind of really engage with, whereas maybe the head office population don't so much. So we do have to adapt to what we do, how we communicate, the, the platforms that we use to communicate some of the wellbeing initiatives to make sure it lands in the right way. Because, yeah, they are very, very different in the work that they do. And obviously you have to appeal to, to the people that are working in those areas. So, yeah, definitely a, a, a sort of a slightly different plan of attack for the different divisions. Terry, because that really points to your point about it not being a tick box exercise, because clearly if you've got that diversity, you have to have a much more personal approach and an approach that works depending on what people's job roles are. Absolutely. We see that with our clients. I mean, we work a lot in the retail space, you know, with the likes of Next and Clear. We've been working with years now, but the program that we work on with Clear isn't the same as the one we do with other retailers, for example. And even within Next, you know, the distribution center is different to the retail floor. The retail floor is different to head office. Um, and even within those areas, I think you can go even further and look at individuals. I think sometimes organizations might be guilty of making assumptions about what they think is going to work. I mean, for example, we've seen an explosion in tech-driven well-being things like apps and online resources. And that's great for those people who are tech-savvy. But what about the people who aren't? What about the people who still don't have a smartphone, for example, and have no intention of getting one? Where do we leave them? So sometimes we can be guilty of assuming we know what people need. And I think that where I'd like to see well-being going in the future is, is to start actually asking people, you know, what, what are the real barriers? What are the real issues that are, are preventing well-being? At the end of the day, you can give me as many free bananas as you like on Fruity Friday. If I'm going back to my desk and I'm being bullied, my well-being is going to be in the toilet, right? Absolutely. And, and Claire, that, that points something very important, clearly. Quite a few people who'll be listening in today from other retail organizations will have positive intentions, but... How do you actually turn that into something meaningful for your employees? I think that you have to be behind everything you do. You can't just say that you're doing certain things. You actually have to make sure that you've embedded your program and get signed in actually from a very high level to make sure that, that it is actually, it's got the backing and it's actually going to happen. And it's also reminding people at all times what's available to them. So it can't be, yeah, we've done that, yeah, we've done that. It is about reminding people, refreshing people, wrapping things up in a different way and sending the message out again because people only need help when they need help. So I think it's important that we make sure that we're always letting people know, we're always dangling the carrot, we're always letting people know that help's available just in different ways. Terry, is that your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think saying you care is one thing. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by the amount of plaques and awards and charters and accreditation schemes that are out there saying, yeah, this is a great place to work. And when you read job description, you read mission value statements at a strategic level, you think, wow, this is the place for me to go and work. But then you ask people who are actually on the shop floor and their experience is very, very different. So I think, where is the disconnect coming? Because senior leaders are bringing in these initiatives, if you like, uh, and we know that I think various surveys have shown over 80% of global businesses are now looking to well-being as being a business priority moving forward into 2022. But we know that less than 20% of those businesses have actually fully integrated the well-being into the core of what the business does. So it's part of the people and the business strategy, not just a bolt-on initiative. You know, I think that's where, where well-being needs to go. But again, assumptions are being made, and I'm not sure that we're asking the right questions, which is why you know, we, we're very excited to be working on a research project where we're, you know, with the likes of Next and some of our clients, uh, you know, Sainsbury's and Nike and the likes, where we're trying to delve into, let, let's understand what the real barriers are rather than making assumptions so that we can truly get to what well-being looks like in the future. I think that's a really exciting project that we're working on to try and understand the landscape. 
Yeah, I think it's all very well as saying, yeah, yeah, we're doing a really good job, but we're perhaps not the best people. Absolutely. <laughs> Just to say we're doing a very good job, I think we have to ask the people that are kind of, you know, working in the different areas if, if they feel that our well-being is in a good place. So for those listening in that want to embark on this journey, can you talk us through some of the steps that you believe are vital to achieve a successful workplace and wellbeing programme? Claire, how did you begin? I think I've already mentioned one of the things, which is, is getting a, a buy-in from a very senior level. If it wasn't going to happen at that level, it's not going to happen at all. I think we have to make sure that the that kind of our senior board were on board, and, and they definitely were. We then put together a charter, and I suppose that was a line in the sand of, of kind of what we were intending to do, what our commitment was to mental health as well, mental well-being. So that was communicated. And then I suppose it's about education and training. You can't just say, yeah, we've got a charter and that's it. We have to do things to make sure that, that what we've put within the charter actually comes to life. So it's about training, it's about education. Uh, we trained uh, our managers um, so they were aware of what was in place and what they needed to, to support. Then we also trained some specialists in mental health first aiders. And a lot of companies have mental health first aiders. But again, it's about letting them know what their role is, how they fit into the, the, the whole piece. Um, you can't just train people and then just let them go. And I know Terry's kind of experienced that previously, that, you know, people train them and think, yeah, that's done. But actually is about, you know, keeping them connected, having a network and letting them know that there's support in place for them as well. And then it is about sort of communicating what well-being initiatives you've got and how you can support people. We have um, a well-being hub, which is available, a well-being site, which is available for all employees so they can see in a one-stop shop type approach of what's available and how to get support. And it's just the communication and getting the message out there. And I think we've mentioned as well that it's not apps aren't for everyone. So you have to look at other ways of getting to people. So whether it's still the old-fashioned poster, whether it's a, you know, a QR code that helps people to easily access something not everybody's going to download an app and if someone needs mental health support you know, that might be a barrier to them getting the help that they need uh, but but our well-being um, site sort of has a whole range of support not just for kind of you know sort of counseling and information uh, resources it's, it's got a whole range of, uh, of information about kind of health and how to look after yourself as well so it's, it's kind of very sort of uh, wide-reaching. And Terry, for those that are early on this journey, are there some obvious early steps they can take, some easy things they can do to get their journey moving for them? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Claire would probably agree in, in that doing nothing's not an option right now. <laughs> you know, uh, I think some people are, regardless of the size of the organisation, really reluctant to dip their toe in the water for fear of, of getting it wrong or not having the perfect product to start with. I don't think anybody ever starts out perfect. I mean, this is very much a journey, to, to use a phrase that Claire uses regularly. You know, this is a journey and it will evolve and it will turn into something that's unique to each individual team and maybe, you know, the, uh, the departments. So I think uh, the fear of not starting is, is, is a huge barrier that you need to get over and just do something. I would suggest starting with asking your people on the ground what matters to them. I mean, well-being is so much more than just mental health awareness, which is what it seems to, to be portrayed as. You know, there's other aspects to well-being, like your physical health, your financial health, all these things. What matters to people? Ask them. And then take that up to the senior level. Senior level buy-in is absolutely essential. It's certainly been our experience over at Next with many other retailers that we work with, but also globally surveys continuously tell us that senior level buy-in is absolutely essential. But then I think focusing on that middle level of management is key as well because managers are the ones who affect your culture more than anyone else, right? And if we go with a really basic understanding of what culture is, I like a definition which is pretty straightforward. Culture is the way we do things around here. So let's not wait for the policy to come down from on high. Let's work on how do we do things around here. Start small within your teams, you know, go from the bottom up. 
I've seen it work that way too. So it doesn't only have to come from the top down. It can start from the bottom and go up too, you know, and it will organically grow. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just just do something, start small. It doesn't have to be perfect when you, you know, you start launching your, your wellbeing offer. And Claire, Terry makes a good point because we tend to think about wellbeing as something that comes from the management. But clearly a lot of the management will be quite inexperienced in this area. It's quite new to a lot of people. So how in Next do you support the management in helping to identify what they should be doing and also looking after their own mental health? Yeah, obviously we promote all the things that we do to, to all of our employees. Um, so that's also available to, to the managers so that they can support their employees. But but like you said, they, they you can't help other people unless you're in a good place yourself. You have to be kind of mentally and physically well to be able to support those people in your team. One of the things that we, we do see in retail, given that it's a, a frontline job, uh, it's consumer facing, is that you know quite a few of your staff will have quite a lot thrown at them. Uh, to coin a phrase, what should frontline retail teams be exposed to in the first place and, and how big is it a problem at the moment for the people that are working in the stores or delivering as well? Yeah, uh, I mean, they've been through a lot, haven't they, over the last couple of years with, with obviously the pandemic. Obviously, there's, there's the, the kind of worry initially about kind of the safety and security and the kind of health risks of, of, of kind of working in, in a retail store. I think Next have been amazing at, at protecting our employees in, from that point of view uh, with the control measures that we've, we've had in place. But I think that more recently, there's, there's probably been uh, less tolerance from customers, not necessarily in Next, but I think retail generally, you know, with less staffing, in, in, in store we've had situations where because covid has, has meant that you know we've got people off work that obviously maybe things have, have been a little bit longer to, to wait for in a queue and also i think some retailers have struggled with kind of deliveries so maybe when people are going to collect orders and things like that that the stock isn't available so that does make customers perhaps a little bit more agitated and a little less tolerant um, so yeah we have had experiences of, of customers kind of reacting in a way you probably wouldn't normally predict so I think, you know, we, we've got things in place to support the frontline staff in retail to make sure that they are kept sort of healthy, safe and well. But obviously where there's the situation which is unpredicted, then obviously we then have to kind of um, kind of do a bit of a reactive approach in, in those situations to kind of put some help and support in place. But I think it's about management support. It's management recognising, you know, how staff are being spoken to, how staff are being treated and obviously step in and support them in those situations. We have a zero tolerance. We won't let staff be spoken to in an appropriate manner so we, we just have to make sure that the, that the managers are trained and aware of what to do in those situations you know there's this idea going around in business across the board not just in retail you can't take the heat get out of the kitchen you know <laughs> there's got to come a point surely where we ask why is the kitchen so hot <laughs> is some of this our own doing can we open a window can we take the heat out of situation and you're right loads being thrown at retail uh, store workers at the moment sometimes literally unfortunately i mean statistics are thrown out there at 455 incidents of violence threats and abuse every day in the retail sector some workers saying they're abused every single day that they go into work. I mean, this is absolutely unacceptable. I think sometimes the culture within organizations, in retail particular, is that we don't actually know how bad the problem is because it's part of the job. And being abused or threatened or anything like that isn't a part of anyone's job. I used to work in the police service for 20 years. It wasn't a part of my job. It was a risk of the job. And when it's a risk of the job, guess what? We've got something called the Health and Safety at Work Act, which says that we should do all we can to mitigate and reduce that risk. So I think this is going back to that piece about thinking about well-being more holistically than just thinking of, you know, spa days and yoga sessions. It's much, much broader than that. Ultimately, retail's focus is on the customer experience, but how can the customer have a truly great experience if the staff member that is serving them 
is in a headspace that is one of fear, threat, intimidated. You know, you're not going to get your best out of people. And often when these situations do occur, we shine the focus or the spotlight directly onto the staff member. And we say, in that moment, you did X, Y, and Z wrong. And what we're failing to understand is that the reason that that person got to that position where they made that decision was because of what was going on in their lives in the weeks, months, and years before that. And this is where that complete well-being picture comes in. And it's not just the stuff that was happening at work. What about all the stuff that was happening in my home life? Because, you know, we've got one stress bucket, and it doesn't care if stress comes from work or at home. So when my brain gets into that state, we're into the realms of neuroplasticity here, where my amygdala, my fight-flight sensor, can actually physically grow and become more trigger-happy, can become more sensitive. So I can overreact and, and you know, perhaps perceive things as more threatening than they really are. And if managers are aware of that and they can see that and they have a more holistic view of the employee and they focus their attentions on that, we know that, that can make a big difference. In fact, staff members have been asked in the Usdor survey from a year ago, I think it was, something like that, where they said, what would make the most difference to you and your feelings of safety? And it wasn't things like body cams and CCTV and extra security with SIA badges and stab vests and tasers and all that. It wasn't any of those things. Top of the list, feeling supported by my manager. Managers knowing their teams, actually knowing your people is, is really important. Knowing, you know, spotting those, those changes in behaviours and knowing what's going on in their lives, actually. Absolutely. And clearly it's very empowering. We're talking a lot about protecting people and supporting people, but supported people are also going to be happier employees and hopefully more productive employees. Yeah, hopefully provide better service as well. If you're happy at work, then obviously that, that sort of comes across, doesn't it, to, to the people that you're serving and obviously your colleagues as well. So it's important to anyone listening to remember there's real benefits to this as well as a duty of care. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, supporting people has, has a, a better outcome, doesn't it? Happier people, happier workforce, happier customers. It's, it's really interesting you say that because we know that that's one of the, the, the biggest indicators of, of customer retention satisfaction. And you can directly measure an organisation's wellbeing programme and chart the wellbeing and retention of customers in relation to that. So it's really important. It's a win-win. It's good for business and it's good for people. Claire, we tend to think of retail in terms of stores and store staff, but as with most retailers, you've got a head office with office staff who I'm taking it are being reintegrated now after perhaps working at home. How are you handling that and what's the likely balance in terms of how people are going to work at Next going forwards? Yeah, I mean, we've got our head office population and also our online call centre employees as well. So head office, we have had um, some people working throughout the, the, the whole of the pandemic, um, but our sites have been literally <laughs> stripped, gutted. Um, there's so much perspex and uh, control measures in place to make sure that everyone is safe and, and, and all the, the deaths are all socially distanced and, and remain that way. And whilst the government has stripped back on some of the controls um, and measures next really haven't. Um, so we still have all of the perspex, we still have floor signage, we still have sanitisation and external hand washing facilities and thermal imaging cameras so that we can take temperatures when people arrive. You know, we're doing lateral flow tests, providing for staff. So we're, we're still doing loads um, so that people do feel safe. Uh, I've personally been into the office at least twice a week, two, three times a week during the, the pandemic and, and I feel safer in there than probably any, <laughs> anywhere else I could be, certainly safer than any uh, kind of supermarket or kind of external venue so yeah and I think in the call centre as well we have um, a, quite a high percentage of, of call centre staff now on a permanent working from home contract which was something we obviously never did before but we have a, a, a high percentage of, of, of people working from home because we can't at the moment with the current desk space have everyone back at work and again with head office you know most people are doing a bit of a hybrid approach 
um, to coming back into the office. So it's interesting. It's a real rethinking of the workplace and about people's oh, roles and where totally. they work. Yeah, yeah totally. We, 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 you know, we definitely are not not like okay, everyone can come back in now and and, and everyone sort of floods back in. It is definitely. Um, people filtering back in and it is still at the moment based on the number of desks that we've got we've lost probably about a third of our desks at at head office Terry I'm I'm sure there's nobody perfect out there but when you look at the businesses you work with and and some of those you look at more generally which ones do you hold up as beacons of best practice and what makes their approach so noteworthy interesting I was thinking about this question and and uh, not trying to sound too name clangy and and, and creepy to be honest but uh, I've got Claire sat next to me and I'll be honest Claire is probably the, the the person who speaks with me most to potential new clients or people who are starting out their journey just as a, a blueprint of how things could be done and some of the considerations you know we've been working together for years now and uh, regularly will jump on calls with me and, and help clients lay out their approach their initiative you know so I'll say next for one uh, I think they're doing a great great job in terms of well-being and where they want to go and and looking at it more holistically. But I think um, in terms of other names of companies, I mean, the obvious ones like Google spring to mind. But then again, if you speak to some Google employees, they'll have a very different perspective on that. So I don't think there's one organization that I'd point to as a beacon of, yeah, these, these are the best in the world at doing this. I think generally speaking, however, there are some themes. And, and, and one of the themes is, are you the kind of organization that has your employees hold you to account over your mission value statement promises. So I know of some companies, marketing firms and banking, you know, down, down in London, for example, who will, you know, every couple of months, they'll get their staff together and they'll hold these sort of listening groups. And they'll say, right, these are our values. How are we doing? Mark us against our values. And so they're very open and very honest and transparent about where they're trying to get it. I think those are the companies where you see the most engagement uh, and the best well-being because employees feel part of the system, right? And Claire, when you're looking at what you're trying to achieve at Next, are there other companies you look out to that you feel are really aspirational? Um, I think that some companies may claim to be doing great things, but but actually it is about speaking to maybe the person that works part-time for them, you know, at the weekend in the stockroom or whatever they do, um, to, to work out whether or not they are successful. But yeah, that there are companies out there that, that have huge well-being teams, actually. And and I think, you know, they, they do seem to be, uh, they portray that they, they are offering great sort of well-being support, but I suppose that's how, how that cascades down and does that actually land with the employees at the end? And that's the, that's the question, really. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of what we do at Next. But, you know, you'd have to speak to next employees to, to, to see what their view of, the, of, of our kind of offer is. Um, but I'm very confident that we, we do offer a great well-being support. But it is about asking people at the end of the chain, isn't it, what, what their view is. So, yeah. But, yeah, there's some great ideas and um, innovation out there on well-being from lots of companies, actually. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Claire and Terry. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hope for everyone listening as well, there is some pointers and tips so that if you're at the beginning of your journey... Uh, you've got some ideas about how you might begin to implement better well-being for your staff and employees. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening. <laughs>